Good evening. Great to have you all here. And we are all here for Courageous in Conversations, 33 Artists in Three Acts. My name is Milena Kalinowska, and I'm Director of Public Programs and Education. And I'm absolutely delighted to have you all here. I'm especially glad that you are here, since as you may already know, one of our speakers could not be here tonight. Francesco Bonami, an art curator and writer, who was director of the 50th Venice Biennale and organizer of major exhibitions around the world, is stuck in Antarctica. <laughs> and due to bad weather condition in South Pole, couldn't make it back in time to join us. Instead, we have a wonderful surprise. We have assistant curator Mika Yoshitake joining Sarah Thornton. Mika Yoshitake is featured in Sarah's best-selling book, Seven Days in Art World. They'll be discussing Sarah's new book, 33 Artists in Three Acts, which examines the role of artists around the world today. At the end of their conversation, we will open the floor to questions. I'd like just to thank staff for making it possible for this program to take place, Alex Bendixson, Kevin Hall, and Barbara Whitaker. I also would like to acknowledge a special support provided for this evening by Jacqueline Corcoran and trustee Mark Rosman. I also would like to thank especially Joan Gold and Andrew Stern for their generous support of the Courageous in Conversation series. This is the second program in the series. Now to our speakers. Sarah Thornton is a writer and sociologist of art, formerly the chief correspondent of contemporary art for The Economist, my favorite paper. Thornton has also written for publications including Art Forum, The Guardian, and The New Yorker. Thornton holds BA in art history and PhD in sociology. Her doctoral thesis, which investigated hierarchies of coolness through a case study of dance clubs and raves, led the Daily Telegraph of London to call her the Britain's hippiest academic. Her book, Seven Days of Art World, was named one of the best art books of the year by the New York Times and is an international success, currently available in 17 languages. The new book, 33 Artists in Three Acts, is her newest production, and this is what we will be discussing tonight. It is a result of four years of research and interview with 130 artists. The book offers look into the inside of lives of contemporary artists around the world today. Joining Sarah tonight is Mika Yoshitake, assistant curator here at the Hirshhorn. Mika and MA and PhD in contemporary art history from UCLA which culminated in the award-winning exhibition and book, Requiem for the Sun, The Art of Monaha. While at the Hirshhorn, she has organized speculative forms and Gravity's Edge, co-curated Days of Endless Time, signbound photography from the collection, and Dark Matters, and coordinated Damage Control, Art and Destruction since 1950, and I Weiwei, According to What? Her writings appear in many important publications, Guggenheim, MoMA, MOCA, and elsewhere. Please help me to welcome two very smart women, Sarah Thornton and Mika Yoshitake. Thank you. 
Thank you, Milena. And thank you very much, everyone, for coming tonight. Um, so Sarah and I met, I think it was in 2007, um, for Seven Days in the Art World, um, which was a snapshot of the contemporary art world from various uh, perspectives, the auction, the crit, the fair, the prize, the magazine. And um, it was in Japan where he, she was um, interviewing our Takashi Murakami, where I met her. And um, I was working as an um, assistant to Paul Schimmel. And so that was um, a very different kind of time in which now um, she was interviewing me, and now the tables are turned. So I'm interviewing you. Um, and so 33 Artists in Three Acts reveals the way artists position themselves within the art world, um, what it means to maintain a persona, to be part of the power structures, um, to make and sell work. And what is so interesting and distinct about this book is that you do this by asking the most fundamental yet self-critical question, what is an artist? Um, and it brings to mind a lot of different um, subcategories and questions about authenticity, credibility. Um, and instead of focusing on the work, you do this by creatively staging the artists into actors who come and come appear and kind of come back into scenes that um, are developed over a four-year interview process. And so these characters are really, um, there's, there's a lot of, of development over their, um, their lives within this um, period from, I think, 2009 to 2013. And um, you divide this into three acts, politics, kinship, and craft, um, stretching the definitions of each into numerous ways um, and artists in unusual categories, like Jeff Koons is in politics. Um, and you even have not, um, curators in kinships like uh, Maurizio Catalan and uh, Massimiliano Gioni and Francesco Bonami as a kind of art world um, family if you will, and um, in craft, um, you have artists, you know, from Andrea Fraser um, to Damien Hirst, um, and so you have kind of celebrity artists like Jeff Koons, Hirst, Ai Weiwei, perhaps Marina Abramovich, to intellectuals like Fraser and Martha Rossler, to pranksters like Maurizio Catalan, art world darlings like um, Cindy Sherman and Yayoi Kusama. And so you're able to kind of integrate various segments of the art world um, in this very kaleidoscopic perspective um, that bring together public and also personal territories that are often deemed forgotten or irrelevant. Um, so instead of focusing solely on the artist's work and work environments, you also notice um, you know, what they're eating, what they're collecting, um, their habits, their home life. And this all comes from your very astute observations um, in having this background as a sociologist. And so I think that that method is something I'd love to talk about um, tonight. So the first question I actually have for you is the introduction of the book begins with a quote by Marcel Duchamp. I don't believe in art, but I believe in the artist. And I just wanted to ask you about this quote and um, the role of belief in art. Let's see, where shall I start? I mean, I think, uh, I have to say I don't entirely agree with Duchamp on that. I do believe in art. I also believe in artists. Of course, it's very hard to distinguish the two in many cases um, because art can cease to be art when an artist renounces authorship in the work. 
Um, and uh, an example of that from the book is Katie Noland, who um, I have a conversation with in New York, and she there's kind of a cult of personality around her work in a way. She hasn't made work since about 2002, um, and until last week, she was the most expensive living artist, living woman artist in the world, um, and one of the few people to uh, evoke her rights under the authorship, sorry, the Visual Artists Act of 1990. Um, so work of hers was coming up for sale, estimated between 200 and 300 thousand dollars, and when she took her name off it because she felt the damage to the work might damage her reputation, it was worth nothing. Of course, the art market is, is, is very cut and dry about that, but I think the art world as well. Art museums are full of authored objects. Museums of mankind are full of craft objects made by anonymous artisans. One of the things that differentiates craft from art is the author, the, the, the brand name that backs it up, that gives it extra energy, power, mystique, and myth. Um, uh, so Duchamp is absolutely integral to this. Um, uh, you know, 19th century painters had their credibility uh, problems in various ways, but Duchamp made belief uh, a central artistic concern when he started working with ready-mades. The moment you take a urinal and uh, turn it on its side and sign it and, then, and call it fountain, uh, you know, you're, you're playing with people's belief. Um, now Duchamp, many years later, almost a hundred years later, uh, is the godfather or the granddaddy of contemporary art. Con the thing that contem distinguishes contemporary art from modern art, uh, uh, there are arguably several things, but uh, one of the key things is the concept rules. Um, and so in crafting ideas, um, uh, Duchamp also began crafting identities. And often, in, when, the, when I was taught art history, these things were kind of segregated as if they were completely different random events. It's my opinion that it's no accident that in the process of crafting ideas in that way, he crafted identities like Rose Selavy, uh, his transvestite alter ego, and, um, uh, his, you know, positioning himself as a most wanted man and a wanted man poster and, and lots of kind of vague gambling crooks and different works. Um, I think the, the onus, the authority of the artist becomes all the more powerful, all the more difficult to maintain when um, an artist has a godlike power to designate anything as art. And so uh, you, even artists who don't think of themselves as particularly Duchampian, I think, um, in con uh, with contemporary art nowadays, that that's he his kind of ghost dominates the landscape, and um, it's very difficult to be an artist nowadays. It's very difficult to be taken seriously. I think it's a complete myth that anyone can be an artist. Uh, being an artist is a very hard won identity. Um, I talk to MFA students who may have graduated from stellar art schools with top-notch degrees, and they still don't, they feel kind of embarrassed declaring themselves an artist. They, they're not ready to. They, you know, maybe they feel like there are some other benchmarks of validation that they require in order to confidently declare themselves an artist. So I'm rambling here. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, the, the, the book investigate, very much investigates the legacy of Duchamp, really, uh, in terms of the, the, the 
the difficulty of um, commanding belief in others. Because w with contemporary art nowadays, there are no set standards of quality, um, and artists need to define their own criteria of excellence, and then they have to command belief in that, in, in that world they've created of, of discourse and work. And um, it, it's a huge challenge. And, and, just, and I guess one thing more to say, uh, but I'll let you ask another question before I ramble some more. Well, it I sounds... could talk more, of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, um, I just wanted to mention some of the examples. So the way that artists have defined there's personas that, you know, this, this question, what is an artist? Well, I, I mean, I don't think the book is about persona. And I actually think most of the artists in the book would not identify with the term persona because mm -hmm. a persona is really a mask. Right. I'm interested in artists' public selves, I guess. Okay. And their private selves. And actually, the stories they tell themselves to con convince themselves that they're a good artist when they're in the studio by themselves. You know? Right. So Which it's is part about of this self identity in a kind of deeper sense than a shallow persona. Mm -hmm. um, so, for example, Ai Weiwei, an enemy of general sensibilities. Okay. Um, well, when I ask him what is an artist, uh, like a lot of uh, my interviewees, he doesn't have an automatic answer because it's not something you expect on every studio visit. And um, he starts telling me the story of his father, who I'm sure well known to you, was a painter who, when he was incarcerated, gave up painting because he had no access to materials and became a poet, and a much celebrated poet. And then later fell afoul of uh, the Mao government, was declared a rightist and exiled to the remote regions of China, where he cleaned latrines and did other menial labor as punishment for 18 years. And this is the situation in which Ai Weiwei grew up. And as Ai Weiwei put it to me, he said, well, my father was uh, all my life, you know, all that through that period, my father was an enemy of the state. So, given that he told me this long story, as in reaction to the question, "What is an artist?" Um, I said, "So, is an artist an enemy of the state?" And he said, "No, an artist is an enemy of general sensibilities." And you know, I think that is actually a very familiar, romantic. Uh, myth, or not myth, a romantic incarnation of the artist, definition of the artist, one we associate with the avant-garde. Mm -hmm. And the thing that interests me is that Ai Weiwei, living in a non-democratic state with no freedom of speech, can actually enliven that definition credibly. I think, actually, it would be very hard for a New York-based artist to tell me that and for me to not think they had delusions of grandeur. You know, <laughs> because in a pluralistic society, you know, where's the general sensibility? And of course, we're, we're, the art world is ever absorbent to shock and mm -hmm. contrariness. But in his culture, that that is, you know, I, something one can do credibly. I mean, I think one thing you do is you navigate, you know, these kinds of what um, kind of criteria or consensus of belief these artists can herald. and. Um, and so some other definitions that have been provided are, you know, Francis Elise, who says the artist is a, a midwife. 
uh, which is very, very funny, right? He says, I'm, uh, when I asked him what is an artist, he said, he says, I'm a midwife, I'm just the, the guy on the side, which is so wonderfully contrary to like the historical grand association of virility and creativity. Um, the heroic kind of, artist. The heroic abstract expressionist. Uh, and, and it's something that Coons does evoke. Um, you know, Coons does seem to fuse virility and creativity and uh, talks about the biological drive being the grand human narrative and things like that. And of course, he does have eight children. He backs it up in real life. Um, but you know, he oddly, you know, doesn't answer the question. He evades the question. He's a master of evasion, Mr. Coons. Um, but he tells you a lot inadvertently. Right. So all these um, kind of Freudian slips or interpretations that, you know, you're able to really pick up on those in the book. As we go by, I mean, he offers at least three different definitions of the artist inadvertently. At one point, he says, if you're in the public eye for long enough, um, uh, you're inevitably burned at the stake, suggesting like he's a heretic saint. Um, you know, uh, on another occasion, he trots out one of his... Um, uh, favorite anecdotes, which is about how when he was a child, he loved going door to door selling chocolates and wallpaper. Um, and it's so hard to paraphrase Coons. I think I can find it pretty quickly. Um, yes, and so then he says, I enjoyed not knowing who was going to open the door. I never knew what they would look like. I was always someone who wanted to be engaged. It's the same with being an artist. He kind of like, you know, and yeah, artist is door-to-door -door salesman. And I have actually encountered Coons in Kiev, Moscow, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, Doha. <laughs> Wearing a suit. Yep. Pressing the flesh. But then there are other artists like Zhang Fanji, who says he's a solitary philosopher. Um, the, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Um, there are two Chinese artists in the book, Ai Weiwei and Zheng Fanzi, and they are kind of, Zheng Fanzi is a bit more like the Jeff Koons of China, uh, um, an incredibly rich artist who, you know, has sold yeah. for millions at auction. His, interestingly, his studio is just around the corner from um, Ai Weiwei's. Ai Weiwei's. You can walk between the two, but of course they couldn't be further right. apart. Um, and uh, like a lot of Chinese artists, Zheng Fanzi was really working in an almost 19th century mode as a painter craftsman. And um, intriguingly, a lot of painters, Chinese painters in that mode, um, associate conceptual artists as kind of, um, uh, uh, they, they talk about them in kind of communist style Maoist terms, actually, um, despite the fact that China's like an art worker. No longer like that. So yes, they say the painter, you know, the painter craftsman is like an honest worker, an honest peasant. Whereas the, you know, the conceptual artist is like that entrepreneur who owns the factory, suggesting some decadence there. Right. But of course, um, you know, the conceptual artists are like creative directors or architects rather than craftsmen. And, but he's putting a, a kind of, um, uh, a Marxist slant on it, despite the fact that all those fridges full of uh, French Bordeaux are uh, not very Marxist looking. <laughs> so, 
you know, some of the things that I was noticing from your previous book and this one is that you have this tendency to create pairings that help distinguish between key aspects of the art world. Um, so in seven days, you have the speed and wealth of the auction, and then the slow lo-fi process of the crit, and then um, the fair and the studio visit being you know, sites of consumption and production. While in 33 artists, um, you pair artists um, Ai Weiwei versus Coons, um, Andrea Fraser is an antagonist to Damien Hirst, and then um, the nuclear family, which is Laurie Simmons, Carol Dunham, and then their daughters, Grace and Lena, um, as well as the kind of art world family. So can you talk a little bit about these pairings um, mm -hmm. and how you came up with them? Well, I, I don't know. I, comparing and contrasting, I guess, feel, feels very natural to me. I learned art when I studied art history as an undergraduate. There were always two slides on the, on the screen. They were always compared. You know, there'd be Monet and Manet, or, you know, Renoir and Degas. Um, and uh, I think that um, artists are individuated. Uh, the, you know, the solo show is the dominant exhibition format. The monograph is the dominant book format. Profiles are, you know, and I really, in order to understand artists as a group, you, you have to get them together, and it seems like comparing and contrasting them seem to be a kind of natural way to think through the problem. And, um, you know, Ai Weiwei and Jeff Koons, they're about the same age. They're both very Duchampian. They both use the media like nobody else. Uh, but one of them uh, politicizes everything he touches, and the other would like to, ideally, depoliticize everything he touches. And actually, when I first told people I was including Koons in an act called politics, they were like, Koons has a politics? You know? Uh, is actually kind of interesting to tease out the politics of, uh, you know, he would it's like to avoid yeah. the, um, uh, you know, avoid the conversation. Um, with uh, Damien Hurst and Andrea Fraser, I mean, she's very much the anti-Hurst as far as I'm concerned. They're both spectacular risk takers. They're both born in 1965. Um, uh, you know, but they're, they're, he is like the ultra prolific luxury goods maker. Andrea has not barely made an object since 1993. Um, he did this sale called Beautiful Inside My Head Forever at Sotheby's, um, which at the time I was interviewing uh, a, a lot of artists already. And um, the artists I interviewed about that sale were split fairly evenly between those artists who thought it was a conceptual event mm -hmm. and actually celebrated it because um, never had an artist had so much control of their market. So and this is in order they, to avoid having a secondary market? Um, well, you know, that's pr another aspect of it. Um, uh, and then the other half of the artists were... Um, uh, thought that he had ceased to be an artist, which is very interesting to me. I'm, I'm uh, you know, you talk to people nowadays, uh, artists nowadays, and, um, you know, start talking about authenticity and credibility, and they will say things like, well, you know, since Warhol, there's no such thing as authenticity and, and uh, you know, artifice rules. But then three hours into the interview, they'll say something like, oh, but he's not a real artist. Uh, you know, this... The art world is uh, judging constantly between people they 
consider credible and those they don't. And often it comes out with the term real. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, Hearst for, for many people has ceased to be a real artist. Um, principally because commerce does threaten artist credibilities and he took it way too far in many people's opinion. Um, Andrea Fraser, by contrast, has done a kind of, just like Beautiful Inside My Head Forever, if you consider it an artwork, is one flag in the stand, kind of at one extreme of what an artist could do. I think Andrea has put a, a flag in the sand at the other end. She um, has done lots of different uh, artworks about being an artist. Uh, that's one of the reasons she's my pinup on the cover <laughs> of the book. Um, but uh, the, she did one called, called, called Untitled. Uh, she always titles her work, but she used that generic uh, very specifically. And um, in that work, she solicited a collector uh, to screw her in front of a surveillance camera um, uh, for the work, creating a very different metaphor um, I mean, pushing than the one adopted by Hearst. Um, pushing the boundaries of the relationship between the artist and the collector to its exactly. most extreme degree. And so in the middle section, kinship, the theme of kinship gives rise to clusters rather than a pair. And I have the Dunham-Simmons family, as Mika already mentioned, contrasted with Maurizio Catalan and his brothers in crime, and Cindy Sherman, who's my true loner, um, and who has been, is a long-term friend of Laurie Simmons, um, to the degree that she's called her her artist soulmate. Um, yes. So I think uh, uh, there, there, there's also one more recurring character in the book that's Gabriel Orozco appears in Act 1 and Act Three and 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 those recurring characters allow for narrative development, the change, mm-hmm. plot lines, um, and um, and allow the the solo characters to come in and spark off other kinds of debate. So, you know, tell us a little bit about the evolution of um, your process. I mean, you did track, you know, go back and visit, for example, Ai Weiwei um, before he was imprisoned and then you saw him after. Um, And also there's, you know, Laurie Simmons and Carol Dunham before and after um, their daughter's kind of success. And so how did um, this development change? I mean, your impression of the Mm -hmm. artists? Mm -hmm. Well, um, I mean, the artists who recur... Um, there was change in their life and there was also change through the long-winded conversations they had to endure with me. <laughs> so, uh, you know, Carol Dunham and Laurie Simmons, Carol's nickname is Tip. You know, Tip and Laurie, uh, you know, I'd be coming back to visit them six months later and they knew I was coming, you know, and they'd, sometimes I could barely be walking in the door and Tip would say, I've got an answer for you, you know, <laughs> like a new, a, a new answer to that question. Oh, um, Right, and then um, her, the Hurricane Sandy also was a very big Im- event around that time too, so. Absolutely, I mean, um, there are little moments of the outside world that come in and affect people's lives, and of course Hurricane Sandy was very impactful in Chelsea, and Carol Dunham, uh, Francis Elise, and Jen Dalton, three of the artists in the book, had work um, in Chelsea when the storm hit mm-hmm. and suffered different degrees of damage. And um, I talk about that with them. Um, just going back to, um, 
you know, uh, Tip and Laurie, and, and actually Mauricio Catalan. And Catalan kind of inspired the book uh, in the first place. He had given me the, uh, uh, the image for the cover of Seven Days in the Art World in Britain and in about nine translations. It's a, a, a kind of his horse, a kind of headless horse sticking ass out um, <laughs> in a very absurdist way that worked very well for that book. Um, and I, but I'd never met him. So he'd, he'd, he, he knew I was a fan. He'd given me the, the, uh, this image for the cover of the book. Um, and we'd had correspondence. And then I finally met him in the summer of 2009. And I had uh, the kind of strange happenstance to kind of meet him about s in six different cities over the course of about six weeks. Um, so I saw him in Venice, and then Milan, and then Basel, and then New York. And then I shadowed him uh, on a photo shoot he was doing with W um, in New Jersey. And then I saw him in, well, five cities, five places. Anyway, and um, uh, I was just really interested in the way he was playing this game. And he is definitely plays a Duchampian game mm -hmm. in a very self-conscious and strategic way to the point where he's had Massimiliano Joni pretend to be him on stage over the course of eight years. Eight years. A lot That's of self-portraiture. Um, he, interestingly, is not a didact. He didn't go to art school. And if you look at his early work, it's, it, each work is kind of studying a different benchmark of validation that is necessary to rise through the art world and get your work in a, in a museum. It's kind of like a, a, a little study. And he um, stages his own retirement. And then, well then, yeah, what happens? So the guy that inspired the book decides to quit being an artist in the course of the book, <laughs> which, uh, you know, is an interesting thing to happen. Uh, you know, he's, there are a lot of scenes with him and he, uh, right from the very beginning, he's talking to me about the difficulty of sustaining his momentum and keeping up with the myth and making the next work that is going to be as good as the last work. And, um, uh, and so, you know, one, like one thing he says to me in the first scene, at the end of the first scene, is um, when I ask him, uh, you, we actually go to see a show called Maurizio Catalan is Dead, um, which is a kind of mock retrospective at a gallery in Harlem, which doesn't include any of his work, but just Xerox copies of his work. But wonderfully, a very accurate biography and timeline, extremely well-researched, with better wall titles than a lot of museums. <laughs> anyway, we're on our way back from Mauricio Catalana's Dead, and I'm like, so how did it feel to like, you know, experience your first retrospective? And he says, we are constantly working on a tightrope. The more I go ahead, the higher the tightrope. If you fall from three meters up, you break your legs. But from 30 meters, all your problems are solved at once. <laughs> you know, he's, he, he, there's a certain morbidity to him all the time, but um, he, uh, you know, he's wrestling with this. And then, I, you know, in the course of the uh, book, he then quite literally slings up his work in the atrium of the Guggenheim, right. kind of like slaughters it and hangs it and uh, retires spectacularly on the eve of the, the show's opening, um, which is also hugely interesting to me that, you know, a lot of artists say you can't retire from being an artist. Once an artist, always an artist. Um, we'll see. So what's the status now? Uh, he uh, does a magazine called Toilet Paper, and um, which, uh, Duchampian, 
Um, and I think, I mean, he uh, was, I think he felt like the art world was confining and over-conventionalized, and he wanted to experiment and be creative in a different mode without having art world judgment. And so if he ceased to be an artist and, and kind of escaped some of that baggage, strangely, he could be a cultural producer of creative things and be judged in a different way. Hmm. So he won, like, the toilet paper won, like, best magazine. You know, it's like, it's just, he's entered a different professional world. Um, right. And luckily, because he hadn't additioned all of the works that he'd made, he can still make a living through... Um, letting out a few of the extra additions. So he did a show in Basel, in Basel at the foundation, the Beiler Foundation, where he had the five horse butts all lined up on the wall. And actually, I thought it was fabulous. It looked like an ca absurd cavalcade or something. Mm -hmm. um, and I think probably one of those was for sale, you know. But technically, he hadn't come out of retirement because it was just another addition, kind of like posthumous Giacometti or something. Hmm. Um, I also just want to ask you about the process and yeah. the method. So, you know, both you and Calvin Tompkins um, cover, he has a, he uh, wrote a book called Lives of the Artist, Portraits of Ten um, Artists Whose Work and Lifestyles Embody the Future of Contemporary Art in 2008. And um, there are four artists who overlap, um, who've mastered media in the market. So it's Jeff Koons, Damien Hirst, Maurizio Catalan and Cindy Sherman. It seems you're, you have more of an attention to the kind of sociological details that are more conscientious of nationality, gender, class, um, based on your selection of artists. And can you talk a little bit about um, how your method, how your book differs, mm -hmm. basically, from you know more of like a profile on, mm -hmm. on these artists, mm -hmm. and how you know important it was to look at these different areas, contexts mm -hmm. for your work. Well, I, I mean, I'm a huge fan of Calvin Tompkins' earlier work. Uh, uh, the Bride and the Bachelors was probably my favorite book as an art history student, um, which he published in 1965. And it's um, very much about Duchamp and um, John Cage and Merce Cunningham and Robert Rauschenberg and those artists working in, um, in New York at the time, uh, inspired by Duchamp. Um, and then, of course, his biography of Duchamp is absolutely mm -hmm. central to my yeah. way of thinking about Duchamp. It's, it's a fantastic book. And um, I think that the most recent Lives of the Artists was kind of a publisher's package. Mm -hmm. I mean, basically, those were all previously published in The New Yorker. There was no connection between them and no attempt to think between the artists. Um, and so you can't interrogate the role of the artist in the same way if you're not going to think right. between them. Um, I think, uh, you know, my sociological background means maybe that I look at a certain kind of so-called lifestyle details in a different kind of way. Um, when I started my PhD, my, my pr supervising professor told me, he said, an ethnographer has a novelist ID, a novelist eye for detail. Um, and, and that does, and then I studied Pierre Bourdieu, this French sociologist of culture who wrote a book called Distinction mm -hmm. um, and, and talks about habitus and really talks about how, it, it's about the enculturation of class and how 
you know, things that are really obvious to us, like, you know, there's a big difference between a tuna fish sandwich and fish carpaccio with jalapeno, or, you know, whatever it is. Like, just the, the, the myriad array of, um, of, of ways that we display our social position through things, uh, through our choice of shoes, our, uh, the way we wear our hair, facial expressions, actually, hmm. you know, and, 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 and accents and language and, and all of that. So I don't see, I never see the details I include as um, superficial. I feel like they're grounding my characters in real social worlds, positioning them, uh, not so much me positioning them, I'm observing the way they position themselves socially. Right, right. You know, so, you know, somebody wants to combine, like, paint, to like, paint um, splatter jeans with Margiela sneakers, you know. <laughs> I mean, often, I'm not very good at fashion. I have to take pictures, and then I show my fashion friends, and I say, what's that? <laughs> but I'm always intrigued. Um, and for those in the know, it's code. Right. Is that sort of how you, I mean, I know... I also want to talk about, like, you know, your identification with, for example, Andrea Fraser, because mm -hmm. her work also, she's very interested in Bourdieu, Bourdieu and yeah. the ways in which we, you know, yeah. like, produce this consensus of symbolic value. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, Andrea's maybe uh, my signature artist. <laughs> She's the star of your last um, act. Right? I mean, I, th I feel like there, there are, there are all the recurring characters are stars of a sort. Um, but uh, she has uh, studied Pierre Bourdieu. So, um, and he's written a lot. He, he's, he's, he's dead now, but he did write a lot about the art field. And so there is a, a, a way that we kind of speak the same language right. um, without getting into any jargon. Um, we're also, interestingly, the same age. Hmm. Um, and... I, and so, so much of, of her work is about being an artist. The um, image that keeps rotating by with her hands in the arm, uh, her arms in the air, um, is from Official Welcome, which is a piece she first performed in 2001, where she uh, performs about eight different artists and their supporters, be they curators, museum directors, or collectors. And um, it's a, a very, very funny distillation of like all the things that artists say mm -hmm. or were saying at the time. And she footnote because it's all a pro mostly appropriated speech. She there's there are footnotes in the script, and so she combines at one point you know Gabriel Orozco and Thomas Hirshhorn, and then at another moment she's performing Hearst, and actually she performs Hearst. She <laughs> takes off that bikini, and when she's entirely naked, that's when she does Hearst. Very, very funny, um, and um, but as, as a as a way of demystifying artists, um, you know, when I ask her uh, uh, what an artist is, she right off the bat says an an artist is a myth. Most artists internalize the myth in the process of their development and then strive to embody and perform it. And so, you know, for me, um, thirty three artists in three acts is not about like stripping away all the myths, you know. Mm -hmm actually art needs myths to have power and energy but it's what are the myths that are credible today what mm -hmm. are the ones that we can believe in that make sense to us artists who are in their 80s can 
maybe convincingly enact one myth that if some 29-year-old is trying to do it, it, it just doesn't ring true anymore. It comes across as a cliche. Um, one of the other things Andrea is very good at is talking about artists' fantasies. And, um, uh, and I think one thing that is true of uh, all the artists I've interviewed in some way, shape, or form, especially the ones with higher levels of recognition, is that they have fantasies of omnipotence, um, which, which makes sense if you're Duchampian and you, you want to, you know, you have the godlike power to designate something as art. It kind of goes well. Um, and, I'll, and just think about, like, you know, being the master of your own universe in your work. Um, and she takes it back to... Um, She's very well read in psychoanalysis, and she takes it back to D.W. Winnicott, who had this theory that um, infants uh, are met with this kind of narcissistic insult when they realize that they're not the center of the universe. Um, <laughs> and, 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 and she uh, jokes, uh, but believes it too, that you know artists cling to that kind of childhood fantasy. And of course, artists are often likened to children um, in their relationship to play and and self-determination and their uh, refusal to renounce themselves to practical realities, you we know, all those sometimes. kinds of things. Yeah. Um, so when, I, when, when she talks about how, um, you know, artists um, are having fantasies of omnipotence, so I say to her, so do you dream of being a god? And she replies, I'll just give you one more quote, uh, maybe the way babies do when they are worshipped by their parents one of the core fantasies of artists is unconditional love and the associated unconditional value attributed to anything we produce. It's not, first of all, about money. It's about love, attention, recognition, regard, and freedom from shame. And I think the, the, the thing about recognition, which often gets confused with fame, is that recognition is a very deep-seated need that we, we all have, but maybe artists have even more. Um, about creating something of value. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think you navigate through the vulnerability of a lot of these artists who you'd never think of that. Like Damien Hirst, when he, he went back to holding a brush for the first time, or, you know, Cindy Sherman's um, being able to, you know, trying to identify her self-portraits, or evading the fact that she is involved in any of her self-portraits, but always kind of being coming back to herself. Cindy Sherman's a really interesting case, I think, because um, uh, interestingly, um, well, she was top of my list when I decided I wanted to write this book. Mm -hmm. uh, her work, I've always been, I've been long been a fan of her work, and I just thought her work was too relevant to my theme not to interview her. So I approached her really early on for an interview for the book. And um, the, 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 someone at Metro Pictures just kind of cut and paste her response into the email back to me. And it was, oh, yeah, her. Uh, I've read Seven Days in the Art World. I actually liked it, but I have no interest in talking to her. <laughs> you know, it was really like flat refusal. So, I mean, luckily, uh, artists come under pressure to promote their retrospectives when they're up at major museums. And so when her MoMA show was upcoming, um, I approached her again and I said, I'll, uh, you know, still like to interview you for the book, but I can also write a piece for The Economist. And, um, you know, got in to see her and, and, and then she was actually exceedingly general, generous. Um, but there was still, because she doesn't really love giving interviews, there were still areas where um, 
you know, we, we, we have a little wrestle kind of thing. I think yeah. it's a fun read. Yeah. Um, you know, I keep, uh, you know, I, I suggest that there are several works in which she could be depicting an artist, and uh, one of which is her um, Caravaggio uh, Bacchus uh, self-portrait work, because that work by Caravaggio is usually known as Bacchus self-portrait, uh, which would suggest is a portrait of an artist, i.e. Caravaggio. But um, during the course of the interview, she um, uh, tries to persuade me that she didn't know it was a self-portrait or she'd forgotten. Um, but uh, I, I think it's a... Uh, I th I think a lot of, it comes up again because I meet her again. She wonderfully was generous enough to see me again when she was installing the same show at SF MoMA. And um, it's, you know, different artists have different orthodoxies. And, um, you know, within the universe of Cindy Sherman, uh, one, of the, the first, one of the first rules is um, her works are not self-portraits. And um, this is the first line in the catalog. And um, I think curators are often under, and we can debate this, um, uh, you know, of, often under a lot of pressure to toe the artist's line. Right. Uh, you know, half the time that their dealer is paying or their favorite collectors are paying for the catalog in the first place. Um, there's, a, you know, various levels of editing that so goes you on. Kind of yeah, and, you do mention uh, that curators are kind of co-creators of the myths that surround the artists because they kind of have to align themselves. And so, you know... I mean, co-creators of myths that are credible and myths that maybe aren't as credible as well, you know. Um, and you said that art historians call this intentionalist fallacies. When I said, yeah, intentionalist fallacy is the kind of art historical term. Um... Uh, you know, I, I, I always wonder when art critics say that they, like, don't want to know what the art artist thinks or, or they want to just look at the work, they don't want to interview the artist, they just want to deal with the work. And, uh, you know, I think it is, uh, it's a great discipline, but I always wonder how they actually can <laughs> because so much of, uh, uh, especially at a museum level, so much of the work is accompanied by so much talk. There's so much discourse that all the, the press releases and the interviews with the local newspaper and uh, the catalog yeah. and all of that kind of thing. Um, so, I mean, this is one of the reasons I think they should probably teach ethnography and, 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 and interviewing techniques and participant observation uh, to curatorial students um, and art history students if they're studying contemporary art because um, it's a methodology that allows you to access the present. And if you're only um, uh, training art historians with archival skills, then how are they going to deal with uh, living artists? I mean, one would hope that they can do a, a very probing, critical interview. Mm -hmm. And in my experience, that is not being the case. Right. Actually, even with some of my art historian friends, I had a conversation with a, uh, a friend of mine in London who only took notes when she went to an artist studio. I was like, you don't take a tape recorder? I mean, I don't know how it's you could possibly be 
a, do a really good strategic interview with only taking notes because you'd be so busy writing down what they were saying that you couldn't think about what they were saying and what the next question could mm -hmm. be and thinking around what they're saying to actually be properly investigative. And, um, you know, participant observation, again, I think, is a, uh, you know, uh, people think it's flimsy, you know, that's how babies learn to walk. Uh, but but a disciplined participant observation is actually, like, really not, you know, looking and writing down and notating and taking photographs so that, you know, the whole studio, for example, right. is, uh, uh, you know, an object of study. Well, I think what's fascinating is you, the, the structure of this book is, it's really kind of like you're the film director and you're really kind of casting this in amazing um, script or, you know, movie of how you see everything. And so it's not just about their work or their, you know, their lives. And so in any case, I want to open this up to questions. I don't know Do if there's going to be a mic. Do we have a mic for um, Alex? Uh, okay. Right in the front yeah. row here. And just while you're getting there, um, uh, very, uh, a, f a couple of weeks ago, um, one of my interviewers said, well, Seven Days in the Art World was likened by the Sunday Times London to Robert Altman hmm. and being Ro Robert Altman-esque. And she said this, she thought this book was more Woody Allen-ish. <laughs> I can see that. You can see why I'd like that. Excuse me. Um, following on that comment about Woody Allen, uh, I noticed you had paired William Pauhita and Jen Dalton. Sorry, I missed your first sentence. Could you just say that? Oh, again? just following on the Woody Allen oh, kind okay. of um, your pairing of um, William Pauhita and Jen Dalton, who are somewhat more removed in kind of disguising their personality behind their artwork and giving out this broad spectrum of data or poll or pranksterish lists. Can you talk about uh, how you chose to pair them? I know they've worked together. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, uh, well, in each act, there are artists who don't make a living from their work. And Jen Dalton and William Pohita both have day jobs. Pauhita is a high school teacher in Brooklyn, and Jen has a kind of like basic clerical job that she does because it doesn't distract. She doesn't have to think too hard about it, and she can focus on her practice. Um, I was introduced to Bill through Jen because uh, Jen has done a lot of work about artists. And so the illustration that ha ha has gone by, and it's coming up next, I think, um, is from a series called How Do Artists Live? Uh, where she um, uh, amassed information from 850 different artists uh, through a questionnaire and discovered uh, lots of different things, including, will having children hurt my art career? Uh, so this is a graph of the percentage of artists with gallery representation by gender and parental status. And lo and behold, um, the men and women without kids orange and red blocks, fairly comparable. Women with kids, of course, suffering with the yellow. But look, who would have thought that blue would be so big, you know? Uh, and, and, that, and I joke, it's phallic, and she jokes, no, it looks like it's the finger. Um, and so, um, you know, Jen's work was right on topic for me. And then I uh, th in that part of the book, I'm also dealing with collaborators, and I'm really interested. So I've got Elm Green and Drag Set and Tip and Laurie and, and, and Maurizio with his curators. And so the collaboration of Jen and Bill have um, uh, 
like solo artist identities, but they also collaborate. And they did something called hashtag class um, at, um, in a, a gallery in New York, which also brought up the issue of class for me. And I'm, I'm, I'm interested in that. So um, I think that's a really action-packed, integral scene in the act. And it comes like right in the middle. Um, and I think their voices are so apparent. If you look at those works, I mean, uh, gender is inscribed in that very polite handwriting on a chalkboard as if, you know, feminized. Uh, the absolute opposite, I mean, I, we have this joke, Jen and I, that she's really transgressive because there's nothing more transgressive for an artist to be than a female high school teacher, right? Because that's so... Well, yeah, or a soccer mom, right? Yeah, because like a bad boy transgression, like guns and drugs and stuff like that, is so conventionalized, right? And so what doesn't look like art is that like hyper-feminine kind of handmade PowerPoint graph. Um, and then if you were able to read as it was going by Bill Pauhita's, um criteria for and his artist assistant, I mean, I wish I had it in front of me. It's so, I, is it really difficult to flick back to that? Sorry, maybe we can bring it up. I mean, the list is hysterical and highly gendered. Their voices, for me, are so distinct. So, uh, 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 the... Here yeah, so, yeah. Okay, first one. Preferably female, hot. <laughs> Ugly men, okay. Um, MFA a must, more talented than I am, able to suppress ego and get no credit for anything. Willing to drink on Tuesday afternoons. Creative, I need new ideas. Non-judgmental. Uh, you know, I love this. Know what I'm thinking and draw it. <laughs> you know, willing to take a bullet for me. Extremely naive, no art world experience. <laughs> Discreet, won't spread rumors. Willing to clean, cook, do laundry. This person can take care of me, excellent, you know, question mark. Um, uncritical with good listening skills. You know, it's just hysterical. Capable liar. <laughs> Computer liter literate, work, win, you know, work cheap, whatever. I like smart, but not too smart. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think that there's a very distinctive artistic voice in, in both those works. So it's not always about the face, you know? Um, and that b both their art has, has a very strong flavor of them. Um, yeah. Well, I think, I think like all interesting artists are simultaneously revealing and concealing to some degree because you need to go back there to kind of try to unravel what's concealed. Um, yeah. Next question. Hi. Um, I'm curious if you talked to any of the artists' significant others and if that, or just had them present and if that sort of gave any information to you that that might have been interesting or said something about what they do. Yes, I did. I did. I mean, the significant others, I was keen to make it a part of the book, and I, um, uh, I d you know, went out of my way to find an artist couple, and that kind of casting process was interesting. It was, I, I talk about the book as both curated and cast, and um, one of... One of the issues for the artist couples is I was very keen to have uh, two artists with comparable levels of recognition 
I didn't really want a situation where there was like a star and then someone living in their shadow. So that made it kind of tricky, actually. And then I, um, other than Carol Dunham and Larry Simmons, I interviewed some other artists who fit that criteria, but there were a lot of restrictions around access. So one couple did not want to be interviewed together, only apart. And then another couple only wanted to be interviewed together and not apart which tells you a lot about their coupled, coupledom, but also I just felt like um, I, you, from having done Seven Days in the Art World and having been a researcher in this world for a long time, I have a pretty quick reaction to know whether someone's going to work with me or not, because at the end of the day, the artists, most of the artists in this book are collaborators. There are people who really wanted to tackle my questions and didn't mind m me revisiting them or revisiting the questions. And even the people with solo scenes have been, usually been, there are three interviews that are distilled into that single scene. Um, and so, uh, you know, there are, Lu Ching, Ai Weiwei's wife, has a very significant scene all by herself because I, um, you know, it's, Ai Weiwei's trajectory uh, in the course of Act One is I meet him at a high point. He's just opened the Turbine Hall, his Sunflower Seeds exhibition at Tate Modern, which I think is very much one of his masterpieces. And um, then, well, actually, we meet him in Shanghai first, but my first interaction with him is in London. And then I'm, I, I say at that meeting, I'm, I'm coming to Beijing, you know, and I book my tickets and everything, and then just before I arrive, he's put in prison. So I go have tea with his wife, who's at that moment extremely distressed, who has no idea where he is. They basically, they've come in, they've raided the place, they've taken all the computers. As she says it to me, you know, we are being listened to. You know, she, uh, she puts it, they, they put little, mi uh, what do you call them? Bugs, bugs, bugs microphones, little bugs um, the size of sesame seeds all over the house. And, um, and, and it's really interesting to get her perspective on him and what's going on. I, I, for me, that's a very significant scene. It's also interesting that she is an artist who has forsaken her own career for his, um, which is a very common situation. Um, and then I visit him again when he's out of prison. And actually, I'm the first person he goes on the record with to talk about his incarceration because it actually took him a very long time to have the courage. He, uh, that, it, the psychological torture was terrifying. And, and um, it took him quite a few months to uh, come out of it. And he actually kind of had to write it down for himself before he could uh, speak it to a member of the press anyway. And, um, and then... Our, the final scene of Act One is uh, Ai Weiwei and I, and I have a conversation on Skype about his Hirshhorn show mm -hmm. and the reaction, it's mostly the critical reaction to the Hirshhorn show. Because one of the things that fascinated me about um, uh, the, 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 the reviews is that all of a sudden, the, my, my question as I see it, what is an artist, comes up in the reviews, which almost never happens. And it's because he's testing the limits. And, uh, you know, uh, Peter Sheldahl in The New Yorker and Roberta Smith in The Times are both saying, is he an artist or is he a politician? Is he an artist or is he an activist? Is he a great artist or is he just making great use of the role of the artist? You know, they're, they're and I actually think that they don't, they had a hard time understanding him because of their approach, um, which was, is fairly formalist. 
and as Ai Weiwei put it, he, thought, he said, you know, I thought that kind of art's for art's sake uh, way of looking at uh, art was, you know, passe. He didn't use the word passe, but, you know. Um, so uh, there are a lot of um, supporters in the book. Um, so if with Francis Elise, uh, Quatamak Medina, a very supportive curators in the room, with Yoyoi Kasama, Glenn Scott Wright, kind of a, a dealer she adores who kind of brought her back to an inter international recognition is in the room. Um, I'm, I am interested in, uh, you know, nobody rises all by themselves. So although I'm focused on them and issues of self-belief and identity, it's clear that their identities are being bolstered by others. And of course this, here's Marcel Duchamp as a brand in exactly the spot you'd find Uncle Ben. And I don't think that's an accident. Sarah, having had this extraordinary range of discussions with people who have committed their lives to this mystical and sometimes otherly worldly activities. What might you say you wonder that hasn't been answered by your own interviews? Um, well, it's, I mean, the, the question what is an artist is um, uh, wonderful for a book like this because of the broad range of answers that, and, 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 the, and, the, and the thing that interests me about being an artist is how highly customizable it is um, compared to other professions. And, um, uh, you know, the, we mentioned a few of them, but, you know, each scene for me is rich in implied answers and explicit answers to uh, uh, the, the question. Um, so you, I, I, you know, but one can turn the corner and there's going to be some artist who does something you couldn't possibly imagine in terms of the way they're customizing the role for themselves. Uh, you know, this, like Seven Days in the Art World, which was a snapshot of its moment, this is also a snapshot of its moment. And one of the things I did do is I actually did exclude emergent artists. I, I, I started out interviewing younger artists as part of my initial batch in, in the, you know, of 130 or 100, and then eventually 130 artists. But I found that I was keen to make these cross-cultural comparisons, um, and I was very keen to understand how gender was working, and uh, uh, so gender, ethnicity, nationality was coming in, and I just could not deal with the variable as, of age as well. So the mean year of birth of the artists in the book is 1960. And, um, uh, you know, I just felt, especially because my PhD is sociology of youth, I knew there was no way I could make sense of what was happening to emergent artists and how they were performing this in this game uh, at the same time as making sense of, of this kind of, kind of couple of generations. It's a two-generational book, not a three- or four-generational book. Um, so, and I wonder everything. <laughs> there are still a lot of questions to be asked and answered. But I do think that, you know, the question, what is art, which is a bee in the bonnet in Britain anyway, um, is, is not accurate.
actually half as interesting as the question, what is an artist? Because with Duchamp, art can be anything designated as art by an artist. So the key question is, who can command that authority? Um, and so... But there's different institutional, you know... That's true, but you can put something in a museum and it's still not perceived as art. It can be artifact, it can be other things. Art requires authorship. Contemporary art requires authorship. Unless you're using art in the flexible term, like the art of cooking, <laughs> which of course is an art. <laughs> okay. Great. Thank you. Uh, how was your uh, book funded? And your traveling and interviews and all Good the time question. that you took? Uh, basically, uh, The Economist has a terrific travel budget. Um, and they uh, are, there's a map in the beginning of the book, and a lot of the travel was paid for by The Economist. Also, wonderfully, because Seven Days in the Art World came out in 16 foreign languages and did very well in certain places, I got invitations to speak about seven days in the art world, like in Chile and Buenos Aires and Mexico City um, and, and Korea, and, although there are no Koreans in the end, but I did do research there. Um, and so I got invited, when I, whenever I went anywhere, I always tagged a few days on to the trip to do research. Um, and so it's, it was paid for by seven days in the art world and by journalism. Um, Yes, it's a very expensive book. Um, and, um, but I was, I was really lucky that Seven Days sold well enough for me to be, it's like artists, when they make a bit of money, they put it back into the work. That's what I've done. All right, well, thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you, thank you very much.